0: Proverbs 3, verses 5 through 6 says this, Trust in the Lord with all of your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will make straight your paths. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Good morning. Happy Father's Day to the dads out there. My name is Cord. I'm one of the pastors here at the church, and if it is your first time, I want to say welcome. We're so glad that you're here. Thanks for spending Father's Day with us. Um, One of the ways that you can kind of make yourself known is to fill out a Connect card. They should be in the seat back pocket in front of you. I always try to say that at the beginning uh, so that it's it's easy to forget towards the end. So we'd love it if you would fill one of those out. Like Ty said, we're in a series uh, walking through the Psalms and the Proverbs, and particularly we've been talking about emotion and uh, really trying to learn the third way. Uh, that the Psalms and the Proverbs offer us. We talked about the, the two ways that culturally we tend to lean. One being emotionally repressive, where we just want to uh, avoid all emotions because emotions ultimately have led us to negative things in the past. So we just want to push that stuff down, be avoidant of that. Or, or a second way, which is uh, also culturally prevalent, which is everything that I feel ultimately should be validated, ultimately should be uh, given a thumbs up, and that you just need to deal with that because that's very real. And just because emotions are real doesn't necessarily mean that they have to be validated, right? And so the third way that the Psalms and the Proverbs offer us is that David has a way of simultaneously feeling and uh, experiencing emotion and bringing that to God so that the, the Lord can help him to regulate his emotions based on the truth of the gospel. And so we've kind of been talking about that third way a little bit. And last week we started uh, the, um, on the Psalms version of the emotion of desire. And we said that desire drives behavior. Or another way to say that might be that we do what we do to get what we want. That ultimately, uh, we, we will be driven by the things that we desire at the core of our hearts, which we said is, is both true, but also can be dangerous, right? Uh, that that's a dangerous truth. That like, at one level, you might look at your neighbor's car and you might say, man, it's an awesome truck, I love that. And maybe you open a savings account or maybe you break in and steal it. Like, it could go either way, Right? <laughs> And so so desire could lead you to some really unhealthy things. And so last week we said, well, how do you define ungodly desire versus godly desire? Well, uh, ungodly desire is born and birthed out of mistrust or distrust, meaning we don't really believe that God is out for our good, but that ultimately he's holding out on us. And so it creates this kind of craving to attain things by whatever means necessary. And then we said that godly desire is birthed out of trust for God, that we Believe and trust that God is an abundant God that loves us, cares for us, and is willing to give to us, and therefore it leads to uh, godly desire. And so last week, we kind of ended with this. When we trust God by delighting in him and desiring him above all things, when God's our highest desire, all of our other desires find their right priorities, right? And so this morning, what I want to do is I want to continue in that vein, but I want to discuss the anatomy of trust based on the teachings of Solomon in the Proverbs. I wanna talk about what does trust look like at a practical level and really try to answer uh, three major questions. Number one, talk about what is the main ingredient of trust according to Solomon? What is the main ingredient of trust? Number two, what keeps us from trusting God? So what's like our greatest obstacle to trust? And then number three, what does trust look like boots on the ground? How do we know that we're walking in and being uh, trusting toward God? And so before we do that, if you will, let's pray, let's ask the Lord to speak to us through his word on this Father's Day. So if you'll bow your heads, I'll pray for us. Father, thank you first and foremost that you are a good dad. Thank you that because of the gospel, because the gospel is true and as certain and as sure as the sun rising this morning, we can be certain that you have a loving disposition toward your children. Thank you, Jesus, for dying and rising to adopt those who believe on you into the family of the Father. And Lord, now would you help us by uncovering the truth of your word. We confess to you, God, that our hearts don't nat- are not naturally inclined to submit to the truth of your word, but that by your grace and mercy, Holy Spirit, would you open our hearts to hear, to see, to experience, to taste, and to know that you truly are to be desired Above any other desire. And then to help us to know what that looks like, God, on this Father's Day. I pray a special uh, blessing and prayer over the fathers under the sound of my voice, God. Would you make them into men who reflect your good character to the world around them and most particularly to their families. And we ask it, God, in Jesus' name. Amen. So Proverbs is a great book, particularly for a Father's Day, because it's written in a style that is kind of father to son. You get this analogy regularly through the book of Proverbs where Solomon poises himself as a father to his sons, but he's writing the book of Proverbs to a general audience saying, listen to me, my son, heed my words, heed my instruction, what I'm telling you is life, what I'm telling you is truth, even if it's tough to hear. And we know this, right, like as a parent, there's many things, many times in our lives where we have to tell our children things that are tough truths, but they're important truths, and that's kind of what the book of Proverbs is all about. So there are a number of different topics that Solomon covers in the Proverbs. Here's just a few. He talks about work. He talks about marriage and family. He talks about money. He talks about sexuality. He talks about friendships. He talks about counsel. He talks about rebuke. And all of these, he gives us these little short nuggets of wisdom, uh, these little one-liners that maybe you even heard from your grandmother. You didn't even know it was a biblical truth, right? You probably have definitely heard if you grew up in the South, you know, spare the rod, spoil the child. That's a, you know, that's a spinoff of a proverb, okay? Okay. <laughs> And so what we find here is Solomon is continually being direct and he's being highly practical to the listeners like a father would be to his son. And another major theme of Proverbs that is more implicit than it is explicit is the theme of the heart. Solomon says in Proverbs chapter four, verse number 23, that we ought to guard our hearts with all vigilance for from it flow the springs of life. Now what Solomon's saying here and Jesus agrees with him later in the Gospels, is that we live in a world that is intent upon trying to fix behavioral problems by recognizing that there's these things that we do that we don't want to do. Like we recognize that we want to eat the food that doesn't actually give us the desired results in our physical bodies that we want. We tend to say the things to our spouses in moments of frustration and anger that doesn't actually promote oneness and unity. We tend to not want to go and work diligently or to save the money that we get. You know, there's all these things that we know what we ought to do, but we don't do those things. Instead, we desire the opposite. And we live in a world that says, if we could just stop doing these things and start doing the right things, it would work out. And Solomon says, actually, it's backwards. That we don't have, like for instance, you don't have a spending problem, you have a heart problem. Like you don't have a lust problem, you have a heart problem. You don't have a language problem, you have a heart problem. Solomon says that we go downstream and we see all the trash in the river and we spend our time trying to pick up the trash. And ultimately the more trash flows down. And what we need to do is go further upstream and figure out where's the trash coming from. So Jesus says it like this, they came to him and told him, your disciples are unclean because they're eating with unwashed hands. And Jesus says, it's not what goes in a man that defiles him, it's what comes out of him that defiles him. And then he says this, because out of the heart, out of the heart, he says, comes evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, lying, slander, he names all these behaviors, he says that comes out of the heart and that's what defiles a man. So Jesus told the Pharisees, you're so focused on external uh, behavioral modification that you're missing what needs to happen is to go upstream and fix what's happening in the heart. The Proverbs has this theme written throughout. Although Solomon gives continual advice about how we should live the wise life, he's quick to say that ultimately if the heart is wrong, it's always going to be wrong. If the heart is backwards, our lives will always be backwards. So last week we said that desire drives behavior. And this week we hear Solomon saying, the heart drives all of our behaviors. So if one plus one equals two, what are we saying? The heart is the seed of desire. That at the heart of things, that's where the, the engine is churning to make us want, to make us long, to make us pursue, right? And so when we talk about the heart, what I want to do this morning is answer these three questions in light of what Solomon says about the heart. So point number one, we'll start in chapter number three, verse number five, answering the question, what's the main ingredient in trusting God? Answer, wholeheartedness. Listen to what Solomon says in verse five, trust in the Lord with all of your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. So Solomon says true trust is always going to come from the heart and that our hearts should be beating, the very center of our being should be hearts that beat for something and that heart should beat for trusting God. That if we're going to desire, get our desires in order, if we're not going to find ourselves succumbing to desires that we know or we don't know will end up destroying us and maybe even the people around us, that what has to get in order is we have to trust God, not half-heartedly, but wholeheartedly. Now, if we're honest, that's difficult, right? Because I know at some level, if you're here, at some level, you probably have a part of your heart that wants to or does trust God. But Solomon is not saying that we can be content with basically living our lives in a way where part of our hearts trust God, and then if that doesn't work, we have a bunch of fail-safes. He says, true trust is wholehearted trust. And the Bible tends to beat this drum over and over and over and over again, doesn't it? Like, if you start at Genesis and you go all the way through to Revelation, you'll get a similar theme, and it's this. God teaching his people to trust him. So like with Abraham, right? Go from your country and your kindred and walk into the place that I will show you. Don't worry, I'll take care of you on the way. That takes a lot of trust, right? Take your whole family, leave what's familiar to you, and just walk and I'll work this out. And then we get that Abraham has a very human struggle, along with his wife, of infertility. They can't have kids. Which at that time is, uh, it's simultaneously something that, deep in the heart of uh, a woman and a man just because it's natural with humanity, but it's also something that's very culturally important because there's no legacy to be left. Basically has like a third cousin that's going to get his whole entire, uh, you know, inheritance. And he's like, I don't want to give it to the crazy third cousin. I mean, who, who trusts your crazy third cousin with everything you work for, right? And so he's just struggling with it. And over and over and over again for many years, God had given him a promise, just trust me, you're going to have a son. But he doesn't. And the Bible records that when Abraham is old, and, you're, and the Bible says, and Sarah is very old. I love that. It's like Abraham's old, and then there's Sarah. She's like older than old, you know? It says God shows up and says, don't worry, I'm going to give you a child. And it says that Sarah's in the tent, she laughs. God asks Abraham, why did Sarah laugh? And Sarah's like, I didn't laugh. And God's like, yes, you did. And then she, she doesn't know how to respond to God, right? And so the Bible actually records that she does get pregnant. She has a child. The child's name is Isaac, and they name him Isaac because Isaac means laughter. That God gives, gives Abraham and his wife a child. But then what Genesis 22, it, just, it almost like it turns right back over, and then God says, here's what I want you to do. As Isaac begins to grow older, he begins to be a young man, I want you to take Isaac to the mountain, and I want you to sacrifice him to me. What? Takes him up there. He's got, you got the whole, you know, big dramatic scene, right? The knife goes up. Angel stays his hand and says, now I know, don't kill your son. And it's this depiction we get to see on the back end with the gospel that God says, don't worry, you don't have to kill your son because I'll provide myself a lamb. The father says, I'll provide my son in his stead, right? And we get that fast forward on, on post-Christian uh, Christ, like life. We get to be able to see, but what about Abraham? He never knew that was gonna happen. He just has to trust that God is going to be good. The book of Hebrews says that Abraham went up there trusting that even if I kill my son, God's gonna resurrect him, that was his trust. That's deep-seated trust, right? And I can go on, I can continue to talk about the call for Moses to trust, right? Go, in, go into Pharaoh and tell Pharaoh, let my people go. Now, you know, We've all watched Prince of Egypt, and so we think you know, that's no big deal because it's a cartoon. That's an intense command. Go to the, the greatest power of the day, the greatest man who called himself the God of gods, and tell him, hey, I'm going to need you to take your entire labor force and let him come with me. We're leaving. Why? God said, right? And, and, and God doesn't give him any like, uh, you know, monikers or he doesn't give him any kind of uh, markers to say, here's why you should be able to do this. Here's the plan. There's no blueprints. There's a, here's a staff, throw it on the ground, it turns into a snake. Try that. <laughs> Trust me, it's going to work out. Take a million Israelites into the desert. Oh, no, Pharaoh's armies are bearing down on you and now you got the Red Sea in front of you. Trust me, I got this. He opens up the Red Sea. You go into the desert, you got no food, you got no clothes and you don't have no weapons for the armies that are coming against you. What does God say? Trust me. I'm gonna put, you know, frosted flakes in the morning. You can have those. Here's the thing. You try to take it for two days, the the second day stuff that you try to put in your pantry is gonna rot, so you gotta trust me. Every single day for food. Don't worry, your clothes aren't gonna wear out. You don't need a target. I'll take care of you. Trust me. You can go, this is the the drum of the Bible, and if you just think that's Old Testament, think about how Jesus interacts with his disciples. Jesus walks on the water, comes up to the disciples. Peter says, is it you, Lord? If it's you, then you'll have me come out to you. He said, come. Well, how does Peter walk on the water if not trusting that Jesus is going to help him walk on the water? What I know about Peter, because the Bible records this, is he's not the most in-shape guy in the world. Like, you might not think that the Bible records that. It does. The book of John says that Peter and John hear about the resurrection, and they both run to the empty tomb. And I love that John records this. It says, John beat him there. (laughs) Isn't that awesome? You get to write your own gospel. You're like, and I outran him. But anyway. (laughs) So think, I just picture chubby Peter trying to walk on water, you know, like some of you guys, you're nimble. I'm like, well, he could probably do it, but not me. Trust me. Or how about Jesus asleep in the boat, the storms are raging, the disciples said, oh, we're going to go down. And Jesus rebukes them for what? Why do you have such little faith? Or why don't you trust me? In other words, it's going to be okay because I'm in the boat, right? And this is the cadence of the Bible, over and over and over again, Old and New Testament, God continues to call us not to half-hearted trust because when half-hearted trust happens, sin always follows. This is like Saul who exhibits this half-hearted trust in God. He still wants to uh, do the sacrifices, but he doesn't want to wait for Samuel. So he tries to take it into his own hands. Half-hearted trust always leads to sin. God calls us into this wholehearted trust. And check this out. This makes sense because the story of the Bible is that God created us Uniquely, not to be independent creatures, but to live and thrive on a dependent relationship with God, our creator. That's how you and I were made. Now, culturally speaking, you and I are told from the moment that we're little that the, in order to grow and to mature and to become a more fully formed man or woman, you become more independent. The Bible actually records that you become more dependent on God, less dependent on the world and things that growth and humanity and flourishing comes from depending upon God, your creator, not in the reverse. And so that's antithetical, right? We're taught from a young age, we gotta figure it out ourselves, we gotta do it ourselves, we gotta make this happen. And so that starts to churn in us this life of independence. Now, so if dependence and trusting God is one theme with the Bible, there's another one. And that is from Genesis 3, the Bible tells us that since our first parents sinned, our hearts that are like finely tuned instruments for trusting God are completely out of tune and out of whack because of sin. And therefore, we're made to trust God, and here's the bad news, we're born trusting any and everything else. That's the default. You guys know when you get a you know, Christmas present or whatever and there's like a default mode to the technology? The default mode of your heart is trusting any and everything but God because of sin. And it's not only because of sin, but it's also because you and I have practiced, to, we, we are masters at trusting everything but God from birth. We've practiced it. We've become really good at it. We've become really good at trusting other things. If you've ever asked yourself why you have deeply rooted behaviors, no matter how much you serve in the church, no matter how much you give, no matter how many times you, uh, you know, read your Bible, but I still struggle with these, because you have deeply ingrained practice of trusting something other than God. You've become good at it. Now, that's the bad news. The good news is look around, so is your person sitting next to you. If that's your spouse, you're like, yes, he, he does. He has practiced that, right? <laughs> okay, so Solomon says we are so divided in our loyalties and that the way to godly desire and fulfillment is a singular wholehearted trust of God, but since we live in a broken and in a fallen world, we find ourselves trusting anything else. I, I go to a gym locally, and I was looking at this uh, writing on the wall. You know, they have kind of art in, in gyms that are like these like, pithy one-liners to try to encourage you. It frustrates the mess out of me. I'm on a treadmill. Don't talk to me. Don't tell me you can do it. I know I can't do it, okay? I already know what's happening here. Just let me do my thing. But there's this big sign, and it just says, bigger, better, stronger, and I'm looking at that thing as I'm like sweating, you know, I don't even know. I'm probably like walking. <laughs> I'm just sweating. Like, oh, it's all uphill. It's like I'm running downhill in like a very slow walk. Anyway. And I thought about that. And I thought, what is this advertisement really communicating? Well, guys, it's saying you're small. So girls, you're like, oh, I'm small. I like that. But for a guy to be small, somebody grabs your arm, and be like, oh, small. <laughs> you need to be bigger, right? How about this one? You're not very good. You need to be better. That's what it's saying. You need to be bigger. You need to be better. Whatever you think you're good at, you're not that good. You need to be better. And then lastly, you need to be stronger. You're weak. So you need to be stronger. Be bigger, be better, be stronger, be faster, perform, right? That's what this advertisement is doing. And check this out. Every advertisement is communicating the same thing Over and over and over again, it doesn't matter what it is they're trying to sell, and it is this. You are broken and incomplete, but if you had this, you would be whole and complete if you just had this thing, right? So it's like if you had the new iPhone, like right now, you're living an incomplete life. You wonder why you don't have the followers on Instagram. Here's why. Because the pixels on your iPhone are just so bad. The lighting, it's just so, you need this. Girls, it says this. If you just had this filtering app, Your Instagram pictures would look like your friends. All your blemishes would go away. You would no longer look pale and squalid. You would look tan and beautiful, right? If you just had this filter. You are broken, but you could be beautiful, right? If you just had this. And you can go across the board. That's ultimately what's being sold. And here's the thing. Why does it work? Because it's hinting at something that's true. Because it's pressing on something that's actually true. At the core of who we are, we have divided loyalties and we have a divided heart. Because deep down we are broken, we do feel incomplete, and we're trying to search for something that might change that score. Now, the irony last week we talked about is that Satan told Eve, you're incomplete, you are broken. If you were just to eat of this fruit, then you'd be whole again, and the reverse happened. She was actually whole and complete, and he tempted her to distrust God, and then she was broken and incomplete, and all of us have been that ever since. Now, here's the question. Okay, so if, if, the, if the, I know where you're headed, Court, if the goal is and the answer is to trust God, and then we'll be whole and we'll be complete. Why don't we trust him? And here's the answer. And it's maybe an answer. The, the most theologically simple answer is because of sin, right, the bend. But here's another one. We don't trust God because we spend a lifetime practicing trusting everything else. This is what Jonathan Edwards says, and the quote should be behind me. He says, men will trust in God no further than they know him. They cannot be in the exercise of faith in him one ace or one iota or one bit further than they have a sight of his fullness and his faithfulness in exercise. I love that he says in exercise. He doesn't mean going to the gym. He means unless we see God practically regularly showing himself faithful, not just to others but to us, we will not trust God one iota unless we experience what it's like to be in covenant relationship with a trustworthy God. So God's answer to that then is to give you the word which tells you over and over and over again, I'm trustworthy, I'm trustworthy, I'm trustworthy. And the Bible's repetitive theme is other things aren't, other people aren't, other things aren't, other people aren't. This is this repetitive theme of the scriptures. So on one hand, what we need to be reminded of, and I think what Solomon is getting at here when he tells us to trust God, is that. This wholehearted trust is covenantal in its language. It is vulnerable, it is deeply relational kind of trust. And I think what Solomon is hinting at is maybe maybe consider this, we have some covenantal type ties with other sources that we trust that ultimately lead us astray in our lives and that's why it's easier to go back to that. Because we've developed these covenantal relational ties to things that we think will will satisfy us or The the, the analogy I used in the 9 a.m. is we know that ultimately there's a hole in the bottom of the boat and that this sock isn't going to actually keep all the water out, but it keeps some out. So we just shove the sock in there and hope that it works out. When it really, really fills up, then we find ourselves in the ocean. We try to tip, but we almost drowned, but we got back in and shoved the sock back in it. Because the only thing to really plug the hole is God himself, and we are completely unfamiliar with what that would look like. So, as a very practical measure, and we are in the Proverbs, so I did want to be practical this morning, I want to encourage you, get to know Jesus. How, Court? Well, a couple ways. Number one, reading the word helps you to know God for who he is and not trust in yourself to develop a little g, God, on the basis of your own desires. That goes badly. The reason we need the word is so that we would know God for who he is. And he presents himself to us as worthy of our trust. Spend time with him in prayer. Wrestle with him in the quiet and seek him out. The Bible says in Jeremiah 29 13, when you seek me, you will find me. This is the caveat. When you seek me with your whole heart. So when we pursue God, he's faithful. He says, you'll find me. So pursue God to know him. And here's what I will, here's what I will contend. What you'll find is that there is no one more trustworthy, no one more full of goodness, no one more full of beauty than Jesus himself. When you read the gospel, Jesus stands out from the Bible as totally different than any other person you've ever met. The way he handles people, the the truth that comes from his lips, the way in which he handles critique, the way in which he handles slander, the way in which he handles murderous plots against him are totally other. He's trustworthy. So I want to encourage you with that. Point number one, the main ingredient of trust is wholeheartedness, and wholeheartedness only comes when we know where we're placing our trust. Okay, now we're gonna come back to that. But point number two, if the main ingredient is trust, what's the greatest obstacle? What's keeping us from trusting? All right, now, I told the 90 of this, I wanna tell you this too. Uh, I want a forgiveness ahead of time if this sounds harsh, but it's gonna be true, okay? So I just wanna, Forgive me a head, okay, because I'm also talking to myself here. The greatest enemy in the way of trusting you, verse number five, do not lean on your own understanding. Solomon knows, and he's telling his son, and he's telling everybody who will listen, don't spend your whole life trying to make your own way according to your own wisdom. Don't try to rely on your best guess. The greatest enemy of, and obstacle of you trusting God, you met them this morning for the millionth time. You saw them in the mirror. It's you. I met, I met me again. I feel, I, he's a devil and not a handsome one, okay? The greatest obstacle to me trusting God is me, me relying on my own understanding, me trusting my own way. The proverb says it like this. There is a way that seems right to man, and in the end, it leads to destruction. That means that you and I could wake up and think, I got a great plan for my life, and it is headed one direction, and it ain't the one you wanna go, baby, now, you know this because you're, many of you are parents. Think about your teenagers. When they're little, it's like there's so much promise, right? What do you want to be when you're a fireman, a police officer? They turn into teenagers. What do you want to be when you grow up? They're like, I don't know, probably beach bum. Live in a hut, get tan. Like, oh, God, help us. There's not geniuses, right? Like, teenagers are a perfect example of why we do not want to, you know, allow them to pursue their desires. Carte Blanche. Because their desires are all weird and whacked. Here's, what, here's the thing. We think that as we grow older, oh, we're getting more wisdom. We're getting, the only wisdom you're getting is if you're aligning with Christ. If you try it yourself and just plan your own way, it's gonna go terribly wrong. Terribly wrong. In the book of John chapter number 18, Jesus has this conversation with Pilate. Pilate's the governor of the day. And Jesus is on trial, about to be crucified. And Pilate comes into the back room, okay, before he brings him out in front of all the public, he comes into the back room, and it's just Jesus, and it's just Pilate. And Pilate says to him, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus' response is, do you say this, or have others said that about me? Pilate's indignant. He says, am I a Jew? Do I care what happens to you? I have the power of life and death, and you talk to me this way. He's indignant. Jesus responds and says, you have no power unless it was given to you by the one that from above, basically saying, God gave you the power that you have. You don't have it on your own. I'm not afraid of you. Then Jesus goes on to say this. He says, I came to testify of the truth, and everyone who hears my voice is of the truth. And then he has this way of saying, and the Pharisees, they don't want to hear the truth. That's why they are condemning me. And Pilate has this three-word response that I think is one of the most profound interactions with Christ, and he just walks out of the room. He looks right in Jesus' eyes and says, what is truth? And then he leaves. And I love that interaction because Pilate is putting his finger on something, whether knowingly or unknowingly, that you and I all grapple with. What is truth? See, Christ has come to testify of the truth, but we are rattling around in our minds a ton of other options that are offered to us about the true way of life every single moment. Like there's a reason that in our culture, When someone says fake news, and I don't care what political party you're a part of, or if you don't care, there's a reason it sticks, because we all don't know what's true. You know why I know this? Some of you had to post apologies. You're like, oh, I'm sorry that article wasn't true. Didn't know that. It was a fake news article, you know. Croatia wasn't invaded by Martians. You know, whatever it was that you read that you thought was real, right? We don't know what truth is. So what do we do? We do our best to trust people or things that have three major characteristics. Are they reliable? Are they predictable? And is it repeatable? I think you could use those three things and for the most part, that's who we try to trust. It doesn't matter if it's a bridge, a car, or your phone or if it's your employee, your friend, or your spouse. You're asking the same few questions, right? Like a bridge, is it strong enough to hold me and my family in my car to drive over and is that repeatable and it's not a one-time thing? Right? If it is, I'm cool with driving over it. Consensus, I see thousands of cars driving over the ship channel. Well, I guess I'll drive over it as well. Your car, is it going to start? Is it actually going to be put in drive and go somewhere? And if you're in Houston, is it going to cool my body? And is that something that can be repeatable? And can I pretty much count on the fact that it's going to happen regularly, right? Or your phone, is it going to connect me with people, whether through text? or like? Let, I've, I've seen this happen. Let your internet go out or your LTE go out for like 10 minutes. You're like, what is this? What is life, right? You need it to be reliable. You need it to be repeatable. You do the same thing with people, right? If you're gonna hire an employee, can they perform the job and are they gonna show up regularly or is it gonna be like a no call, no show on the regular, right? Your friends, are they gonna be loyal to me and are they gonna be there when I need them? Your spouse, here's one. Can, are they gonna put up with me for the next 60 years or however long it's gonna be and stick around regularly after I... You know, do what, I, what people do. Here's what Solomon says, and this is where it sounds harsh, but it's true life. He leans into his son and he says, You need to lean not on your understanding. Or another way to say this is, Why do you lean on the most unreliable, unpredictable, and inconsistent source for truth? But what is the most unreliable and inconsistent and unpredictable source of truth? You are. You are. I know that's mean, but be honest with yourself. You are fickle. I know we're in church. Let's be real. You change your mind often. I'm saying this because I know it about myself. You are hot and cold. You like people and you hate them all at one time, don't you? Like you could buy someone a house or you could burn them at the stake just give it a month. They're all over that spectrum, right? Just based on the time of day. You feel that way about your kids sometimes, They're either like an angel who's gonna change the world or you're worried about jail, right? Genuinely, you're trying to quarantine them for the safety of others. Here's what, you changed your major 12 times in college. Some of you, you still consider yourself a college student. It's over, okay? It's done. It's not a thing anymore. You questioned getting married to your spouse at least once, okay? You were like, I don't know. And if you're like, I never did that. She did. (laughs) Okay, she did. At least one time. And if you're honest, you're not even sure what you're doing right now in your life is the best best case scenario. You're like, I don't know. I just don't know if I'm really going to stay at this job. You've been there 27 years. You're like, I don't know. I might make a career change. (laughs) You and I are a complete mess of divided loyalties, fears, anxieties, uncertainties. And Solomon says, why do you rely on the most unreliable source for life truth? And here's what I just don't understand about the obsession with politics. Human governments are just a collection of fickle and destructive messes that get together and try to do their best. And we think if I just voted the right one in, the right fickle mess divided person, then it'll fix it. Solomon says, why is it that we trust the most unreliable source, namely us? And you're like, I don't do that court, I'm really open. Listen, I, I know that you do it, I do it too. It's whenever we think, you know, I had a really tough day, it was rough week, things aren't going well, I feel spiritually dry. You know what, I'm just going to stay at home, watch Netflix, I'm not going to go to home group. Anybody throwing out like urgent red lights, the dumbness of that? Because here's what you just said, I'm not going to get around to other people who can encourage me, bring light to me, speak truth to me. I'm going to stay alone, I'm going to have a one person counsel with my dumbness. And I'm just going to just work it around in my brain, and we'll figure it out. Me and stupid, which is you. (laughs) And here's what you know about yourself because you confess it with your own mouth. I'm weak. I'm tired. I'm all these things. So you just want to hang out with you and think that's going to get better, right? It's like being on the edge of a cliff and just being, I hope no one shows up, and I can just do this by myself, okay? I can do it. And Solomon says, why do you do this? Why, are you, why do you trust yourself so much? He says, God's trustworthy why. James chapter one, verse 17 says, every good and perfect gift comes from the Father of lights who has no shadow or change to him. He has no variation due to change. Later in the scripture, it says this, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. There's never been a moment where Christ was just like, listen, Father, Spirit, I need a moment. I just, I can't handle it anymore, you know, I'm just gonna get alone and deal with, I don't know if this whole salvation thing's a good plan. It was singular in his pursuits, it was singular in his plan, it was singular in his purposes, it was singular in his hopes and his desires. God's glory stands, he has never changed, and his disposition towards you has never changed. Even when you have been completely fickle and unreliable, he stays faithful. This is why Paul says that even when you and I are faithful, or faithless, God remains faithful because he cannot deny himself. It's who he is. How do I know that that's coming from this text from Solomon? Well, we talked about it last week because when you you see capital L-O-R-D, that's the personal name of God, Yahweh. I am who I am. So Solomon is saying, trust in the self-existent one, the unchanging one, the I am, with all your heart. And what do we have to reject, the greatest obstacle? Trusting in yourself. Trusting in your own understanding. I don't care if you have more degrees than Fahrenheit. You aren't all that trustworthy. Okay? They're just not. I'm really well read and I know all of you thi- I don't trust you as far as I can throw you. Except that I trust the Christ in you. <laughs> that's it. Okay. Now, briefly, and I don't want to spend too much time on this, but I know that there's an, there's an element of how can I trust the Bible, though? And I think that's a, I want to say this because I'm going to sound coy and I don't want to sound coy. I've already sounded coy enough. I think it's an important topic the important uh, d- discussion to have, but I wanna pose this thought on, in the inverse. Um, okay, why should I trust you, though? You're asking why we should trust the scriptures, and I'm saying the alternative is to trust you, and I'm asking why should I trust you? You probably changed your mind a thousand times in your life, hundreds of times this year, dozens of times this week, and a handful of times since I've been talking. If I know you at all, and I don't, but if I, but if I do know you because I know humanity, you are at least a million times less reliable than the Bible and infinitely less reliable than God who made you. So I'm not trying to say it's not an important argument. I'm just asking in the inverse, why should we trust human beings? I know you could say, well, human beings, you know, wrote the Bible. and they said, Here's the thing. When I think about the, the unchangeableness of God and the word itself, I think there's a good argument to be made that when I put you up next to it, you're found wanting. Okay, that's just a side note. So here's what I want to pose. If Solomon's saying the greatest ingredient and the main ingredient of trust is wholeheartedness, the main Mm -hmm. obstacle is you, what's the answer? You have to die to yourself in order to experience a trusting, full relationship with God. And that can't happen just one time, like the teenagers are about to go to summer camp, so hopefully it resonates with you. It can't happen in like summer camp 98, like, I died to myself then, never had to do it again. No, listen to me, the more I walk with Christ, the more I re- realize I'm moment by moment needing to just kill the, the old court because he rears his head and tries to throw out things that are just dumb regularly. All right, point number three, and then we're gonna land the plane here. So what does it look like boots on the ground? We got the main ingredient, we got the greatest obstacle, but what does it look like boots on the ground? Verse number six says this, in all your ways acknowledge him and he will make straight your paths. Acknowledge him. Root word of acknowledge him, Hebrew, is to know or comprehend or ascertain or to see. So Solomon says this, to know God in all of our ways is the boots on the ground litmus test for trust. How do we do that? We slowly and painfully submit to the truth of God by being obedient to the commands of God. Boots on the ground trust looks like obedience. And you might think, ugh, don't like that word. Rigid, structured. Here's why you and I both agree with it without agreeing with it because you expect it of your kids. You expect that your kids will be obedient to you because you're trustworthy, right? Or maybe if you're not trustworthy, you usually use this one. Why? Because I said so. It's a way of saying, I'm an authority, even if you don't trust me. You ought to, Right? the litmus test for trust with God is hearing the words of God and saying, that's trustworthy and I wanna apply that to my life. It's Father's Day, so I wanted to make mention of this. I think the the, the more time that I spend walking with Jesus, the more I see that the commands of God are not restrictive but protective, the more I see that the commands of God are not meant to be a, chains that are keeping me out of, like discovery zone when you're a kid, Uh, but they're like gates that keep me out of the lion's den. Like I read this article the other day that poachers in Africa at night climbed over a fence to hunt lions. Now, can we agree that's just the worst idea that has ever been in the history of man? There's a fence protecting you from the lions. Don't want to get a hunting license, nighttime, I'm going to go to the greatest killer on earth and I'm going to, I'm going to try to get it. They see you at night, you don't see them at night. You know what they found? Just their skulls. That's what they found, the hunters. Now, I forgive me, I know this is like heartless. I just kind of giggled. I'm like, well, that's probably deserved. <laughs> right? <laughs> that that's probably deserved. This is what I think about more the more that I live, the more I see that God's keeping me from literally hurting myself physically at times, and sometimes it's figuratively destroying things through his commands. Like I look back at even my, my life with my parents and I thought, you know, the things that I thought with my dad or with my mom that was an abhorrent, stupid, made me angry whenever they would say no to me. As a, as a parent now, I think no is the most beautiful word in the English language. And it's a complete sentence not to say anything else. Just no. That's all you have to say. And here's what it does. It protects your kid, keeps them from harm, keeps them from stupid, from themselves, so many things happen when you just go, no. And I used to be so angry at that word. Now I look back and I think, like the sleepovers that your parents said no to. You, went, you drove by that house the other day and you're like, oh, yeah, that makes sense, okay. Or you saw that friend on Facebook that you were gonna go over to their house, you're like, yes, okay, that was a good no. Hard no, I like that. Right? Anybody else? Like, thinking about the, the decisions that your parents made and as you get older, you start thinking, that was probably a good call. The question I want to ask is, have you gotten to the place where the commands of Christ have become sweet to you? That when you read the New Testament, when you read what Christ is commanding of his disciples, have you really learned yet that these are not restrictive, they are protective for life? That what God's offering you is not a, I'm holding out on you life, it's I'm offering you real life. I'll give you a few examples Some of these, they'll be comical because it's just so basic and others may be a little more contemplative. Like perhaps God's command to not murder your neighbor was a good idea. Anybody? Like thou shalt not kill, can we all agree? Like solid, like that. Like maybe it's a command that's preserving life for you and your neighbor and not restricting you from joy, possibly. Okay, maybe, check this out, Lying and manipulating your way through life is not gonna give you the satisfaction that you crave, and so God's actually trying to heal you. Right, maybe? Or how about maybe lazy and slothful living, constantly consuming and never giving, won't bring a purposeful and meaningful sense of self-worth to you or your family. And so when God calls you to give, not just of your finances, but your time in your life, he's not saying that because he needs it, but because you do. Possibly, and because constant consumption actually is just gonna lead you to more and more darkness, maybe. Or perhaps a regular dose of slander, malice, gossip, and division in your speech is actually not gonna create the sense of superiority that you crave. And so when God tells you put all those things away, he's trying to preserve you from a path that actually leads to destruction. Like you think that when I slander my neighbor, it makes me a little bit better than her or if I gossip about him, it makes me a little bit better. And God's saying, actually, it doesn't. It just kind of brings you further back down underneath the thumb of the enemy who continues to condemn you, maybe. How about this one? Is it possible God's design for human sexuality to stay between a man and a woman in the covenant and confines of marriage is not restrictive and archaic, but it's altogether wonderful and full of beauty and life? That God's design for marriage is this, commitment to each other that's covenantal and that when sexual, sexuality intimacy happens in that, the confines of that covenant, that it's actually beautiful and not using someone, abusing someone, getting what you want at all costs because you actually have committed to each other. So like Paul says, when a man harms his wife, he destroys himself, right? Maybe. God had some insight there. How about this? Is it possible that God not giving you the desires of your heart as you currently stand or at other times in your life was the most beautiful and awesome thing he ever did for you? Anybody ever gotten there? Like we all get that with like first grade, right? When you were looking at the yearbook and you circled that guy or girl's face, God just give me that as a boyfriend. You're like, oh, thank God that he does not just answer every desire of my heart, right? But I'm talking about as an adult, maybe potentially that was the greatest thing that God could ever do for you. Or maybe one that hits a little closer to home. Is it possible that when God says no to a desire of yours that is good, that he may be simultaneously withholding something in one hand in order to offer you something in another that is deeper satisfaction in him alone? And that's tough, right? I mean, I'm not pretending like I like that at times in my flesh, but in my soul, I get God. And that's what he wants for me more than getting this? Or maybe to sum it all up, is it possible God's plan for your life is better than yours even when it hurts? I think it is. And I think that's what Solomon's after here when he talks to his son. He says, son, don't follow your own plans, your own understanding. Trust the I am with all of your heart. And in all of your ways, line yourself with how he has told you he has woven the universe, and you'll find life there. Now, I think that the final, and maybe initial step to trust looks like this. In order for us to truly desire God like that, we have to first be moved and changed by what the Father desires for us. Because we've been talking about human desires for the last two weeks, right? But you know what we haven't talked about? What the Bible says about what God desires. And I wanna bring your attention to two particular texts in the New Testament. One is in 2 Timothy chapter two, where Paul says, God desires that all would be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. The longing from the heart of the Father is for you to know Jesus and experience life in him. That's God's desire in his heart. Another moment, Jesus turns to his disciples, and as he just got done preaching the Sermon on the Mount, one record says in the book of Luke that he looks at his disciples and he says, fear not, little flock. Do you not know it is your father's good pleasure or desire to give you the kingdom? The very opposite of Satan's lie, which is that God is holding out on you, is the truth of the gospel, which is that God longs for you to inherit the kingdom. Well, what does that look like, Court? How do I know that's God's desire for me? Well, on this Father's Day, we know what God's desire is for us because of the cross of Christ. He was so committed to those desires that Jesus died for us. That Jesus was so committed to, to completing our broken hearts and bringing union to our divided self that he was willing to have a spear pierce his own. Jesus was so committed to healing the wounded of soul like you and I, that he was willing to be grieved in the soul, forsaken by the Father on the cross. We know God's desire for us because his action is clear at Calvary. And so the invitation this morning that I wanna invite you to is to experience the love of the Father's desire for you so that then you would desire him in return. Or like we say it in our benediction, Lo- share the love of God that has first been shown to you. Or like 1 John says it, we love because he first loved us. We can't be loving people apart from being overwhelmed by the loving God we serve. So I hope you feel that this morning on Father's Day. It doesn't matter what kind of dad you had because the kind of father that you have in Christ loves you perfectly and wholeheartedly. If you'll stand to your feet, I'll pray for us. Father, thank you for who you are. May the words of Romans 8 ring in our hearts this morning. If you would so graciously not spare your own son, how will you not also give us all things? Father, thank you that you didn't even spare your son. And Jesus, thank you that you didn't go to the cross unwillingly, but you went with your arms wide open to receive the suffering because you saw the joy of the family of God together. That you saw us, you saw me in my rebellion, you saw me in my brokenness, and that you desired to make me whole again enough to endure the cross. Thank you, Jesus, that you love me like that. And Holy Spirit, would you open the eyes of our hearts that it's not unique to me, but you have have loved us that way. That for those here this morning who maybe perhaps did not have earthly fathers that loved them even an inkling of that way, Father, would you extend your loving fatherly hand to them? Show them your love. And God, if there's those of us this morning who don't desire you in that way, Help us to pray the bold prayer that we want to want you like that. We know we don't, but we want to want you like that. We want to yearn for you like that. And as we take of the table, would you remind us of the satisfaction that we have in you, Jesus? We love you. We pray these things in your name. Amen.